This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in, wherever you are in the UK and the rest of the world. Oh, and we have got so much to cram in in our time together. Thank you all of you who uh, tuned in to the first of the second podcast, so to speak, uh, the interview with Lisa Nandy. Got loads of questions and points uh, arising from that interview, and uh, some of those I'll be reading out uh, during this podcast. Yeah, what else? Well, we've got other brilliant questions. So many, so many. Thank God we're doing two a week of these podcasts where our cooperative can get together to make sense of it all. Um, I'll make a couple of notices in a moment, assembly notices. And then if it's okay with all of you, I will reflect on the roots of the sleaze, in inverted commas, uh, that is erupting around another Conservative government, another prime minister. It is extraordinary when Sunak hoped to personify change. And in a way, the easy bit was to deal with the issue of integrity, you would have thought, after Johnson. And yet, here we are navigating layers of, um, as I say, I use this term advisedly, sleeves. That was the term, of course, applied to the major government in the build up to 97. Anyway, I'm going to be looking at that. A couple of reflections uh, myself, um, again, if it's okay with all of you, on what Lisa Nandy had to say in the interview in our uh, second podcast, uh, uh, which, as uh, say, so many of you also have written about. And then over to you uh, for your thoughts on uh, Lisa's interview and also some other questions too. So, yeah, a lot to get through. Uh, just before my reflections. I, I seem to have sort of kind of got an embryonic little tour together of the live show. It's kind of happened by chance. I'm planning to do, you know what they say, you know, the sort of grand performance. Well, later this year, I'm planning to do a nationwide tour. Actually, I hope it's probably going to be next year, nationwide tour, organised properly and stuff. But these embryonic things happen. And thank you, by the way, a uh, very kind offer to fix something up in Bath, uh, which I'd be very interested in doing. Take a note. Don't start running yet until you've taken a note. A live show in Birmingham on March the 21st. I'll put the links uh, to where you can get tickets, hopefully with the blurb for this podcast. King's Place, uh, March the 23rd. Belfast, March the 26th. Rope Tackle. In Shoreham, March the 29th. Witham uh, Art Centre, Barnard Castle, April the 1st. 
and then the Old Market Theatre Brighton on April the 24th. Now, here is a pledge, and this pledge will be kept to, unlike some other pledges. Each show will be different. So if you want to do a little tour with me, come to them all. Uh, But I suspect that is unlikely because you're all so busy. But I hope you can make one of them in that kind of period. Let's say it's kind of formed from nowhere. Anyway, also, thank you for subscribing to Patreon. I'm always grateful, always will say thank you. I hope you're enjoying the latest bonus podcast on Troublemakers. Of course, another one to come quite soon in February. I'll announce next week who it's going to be. So do subscribe. You get all kinds of kind of podcasts on all sorts of things. And I've got this series of Troublemakers has only just started, but I've already got the idea for the next series after that. Let's move on because, God, it, you know, it, the, here is Sunak, uh, who unquestionably has inherited uh, a daunting set of challenges as Prime Minister and who came to number 10 in the most bizarre of circumstances, having lost a leadership contest and ending up winning it through the resignation of Liz Truss. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, in a way, the economic challenges are daunting. Some of the other things, managing that parliamentary party, impossible. I would have thought two things would have been relatively easy. One, dealing with the issue of integrity. And two, presentation. Of course, the two are connected. If you feel you are personifying change in a positive way, you become a more confident public performer. That happened to some extent with John Major in 1990. He was not one of life's natural public performers by any stretch of the imagination. But he appeared in a way surprisingly at ease in the role uh, of Prime Minister. He looked relaxed at first anyway, and appeared to be different from the frenzy of the final Thatcher period. But as we know, uh, I mean, you know, just look at the roll call. And by the way, by the time you hear this, who knows what will have happened to uh, Zahawi and some of the other people being kind of submerged in this latest eruption of sleaze. Um, I mean, it's not just Zahawi and his tax affairs. Dominic Raab is being investigated over allegations of bullying. All kinds of things whirling around. Johnson's £800,000 loan apparently mediated in some form or another by the guy who then became uh, the BBC chair. And by the way, there's a podcast to be done, and I will do it soon, on the uh, state of the BBC, of which, in a way... Uh, The Richard Sharp business, although significant because the views of the chair permeate down via the director general, if the director general is similarly inclined. Um, But anyway, we'll look at that another time. But what I wanted to look at now is why is this happening? Given that in 1997, the Tories were slaughtered at a general election partly over the issue of sleaze. I don't like the word because it implies a whole government uh, being submerged by corruption. Now, of course, in 97, it was nowhere near as bad as it has been under uh, Johnson. And uh, we're now Sunak getting a sort of echo of it too. 
the government of Major was the embodiment, really, on the whole, of integrity. Major himself was not a corrupt figure. Underneath, he had Clark, Heseltine, Douglas Hurd, people like that who um, were, you know, emphatically nothing to do with sleaze, had a commitment to public service and were gripped by the fascination of politics to the point where the likes of Ken Clark and Michael Heseltine carried on after the 97 slaughter in the House of Commons in a way that didn't happen with some of the new Labour people when they lost in 2010. They were gripped by the idea of public service. It was some of the Tory MPs beneath that edifice that was causing uh, problems vis-a-vis sleaze. Of course, Jonathan Aitken ended up in uh, jail. There was stuff about cashing brown envelopes and God knows what else. But frankly, it was relatively minor. And uh, Tony Blair has said since that he regrets using sleaze as a weapon in the build-up to 97, because he too became a victim of allegations, cash for honours, lying to go to war, and all the other things that went on when he became leader. But nonetheless, that was a factor in the defeat of the Tories in 97. And the other was the division over Europe. Uh, They had become unleadable because of the division over uh, Europe. And what should happen when a long-serving governing party not only loses an election, but is absolutely slaughtered in the election, is a serious inquest and an attempt to rebuild the party. That, of course, is what happened to Labour uh, when they were slaughtered in 1983. Neil Kinnock came in and began a stressful, arduous, nightmarish uh, attempt to rebuild the party. It was tough, and the act of rebuilding at times became uh, a problem because it highlighted division. And, for example, when Neil Kinnock took on militant at a, uh, in, in the middle of his speech to the Labour Party uh, conference, you know, everyone loved it in the media and so on. But actually, as I've spoken to Neil Kinnock about it, it didn't really, every time he took on the so-called militant and the left and so on, it merely highlighted division. And actually, there weren't big poll benefits from it. But it was a necessary part of a rebuilding that was uh, flawed but substantial. Now, what happened to the Conservatives after 1997? It's in a way underexplored because they are less critically scrutinised as a political force in the media compared with uh, Labour, which scrutinises itself to the point of uh, self-hatred or or factional hatred, uh, the sort of hatred amongst Blairites for Corbynistas and vice versa, uh, is kind of far more intense than some feel towards the Conservatives. In the Conservative Party, there's less of that. So what happened is really interesting. It didn't really reform. It didn't have a grown-up discussion about the lessons of 1997. William Hague became its leader uh, after that slaughter. And in many ways, Hague is the most substantial leader to have followed that slaughter, the first one they put in. But as he has said himself, he was too young when he got it, and the task was too daunting. Now, actually, his first party conference speech 
1997, was quite similar to Neil Kinnock's first speech to his party when he won the leadership in 1983. Kinnock famously said in Brighton in 1983 in his first speech as leader, June the 9th, 1983, the general election, never, ever forget how you felt, etc., And he said, we would never want to experience that again. They all cheered. But as he tried to move on from the hell of that election night, he moved into other forms of hell. Now, the Hague message in 1997 was, it's time to move on. That phrase uh, was quite a smart one because it would have given him the space, perhaps, to move on from 1980-style orthodoxies to move on from the so-called sleaze that so tormented the major administration. Uh, But he didn't have the space to do it. Instead, as he has said subsequently, he pursued a core vote strategy, which appealed to those who had made major's life hell. A tax guarantee, lower taxes, paid vaguely out of public spending savings, very tough on Europe, uh, if you remember, he spent half the time in the, 2000, the, the 2001 election in Dover saying this is the time to save the pound and all the rest of it. And it was all aimed at just keeping that right-wing core vote. So there was no attempt in practical terms to move on because Haig didn't feel the space. And maybe as a young leader uh, who had been endorsed by Margaret Thatcher, he didn't feel inclined to do so. Then in 2001, they missed the chance of putting Ken Clark in, who could have been, as they did in 97, of course, who certainly would have changed the party's position on Europe. There would have been a civil war, but he would have uh, tried to change it because he couldn't have done anything else. Then they put in Ian Duncan Smith. Now, Ian Duncan Smith was deeply inexperienced in the arts of leadership. Haig was more experienced, though much younger. And we know what happened. Uh, They had to get rid of him. And they then put in Michael Howard, who stabilised the parliamentary party and the wider party. And in a way, did well in that context. I mean, he still lost in 2005, but it would have been a slaughter if they'd carried on as they had been. But he didn't in any way reform the party or have an inquest as to what was going so badly wrong. Here was the party that England chose almost without thinking as a matter of instinct at every general election. And here they were being slaughtered election after election. And then they brought in David Cameron. And in a way, this was uh, got them back into power, but was the biggest flaw in this whole sequence. Because Cameron claimed to be this modernising centrist. He fooled much of the media, as we've discussed on this podcast many times. Papers like The Guardian and The Independent, he wooed, and gullibly they fell for it. And the BBC, lots of the BBC, referred to him as if a matter of fact that he was a moderniser who worried the right of his party. But actually what he was doing was appeasing the right again that had caused major so many problems. So, for example, it's very interesting for a book I'm writing. I've just been reading that famous pamphlet, pamphlet written by Liz Truss, Kwasi Kwarteng and others 
Britannia Unchained. The arguments for a much smaller state, lower taxes, all the things that they try to put into practice for about 25 seconds. And um, it's really interesting because this it was written or published in uh, 2012. Uh, Cameron was uh, prime minister and he promoted all these people. They were at one with him. It was Dominic Raab and others. Um, Liz Truss was a real favourite. She, she, you know, she was promoted uh, without any obvious merit. And in a way, Cameron's message of there is such a thing as society, it's not the same as the state, was not that far off from the Britannia Unchained crowd. And George Osborne uh, slagging off people lying at home on benefits, similar in kind of attitude to this tone. So, in fact, instead of doing a Neil Kinnock, which Cameron would have been required to do to bring about significant change, to turn it, say, from an anti-European small state Thatcherite party into one closer to a one-nation party. He used to claim his hero was Ian MacLeod, who was a one-nation Tory who died suddenly in 1970 when he was Chancellor under Heath. He kind of absolutely boosted that wing of the party that had stood against John Major in that silly leadership contest that Major held while he was Prime Minister, when John Redwood stood against him. It was that type who actually flourished in the end under the sort of Cameron leadership. And of course, his only message about Europe was to stop banging on about it. And those who had already displayed some signs of, in inverted commas, sleaziness, were in some ways indulged. Look at Boris Johnson. Uh, Cameron was wary of Boris Johnson, you know, schoolboy rivalries at Eton onwards. Um, But he didn't challenge him. Michael Howard sacked him when uh, Johnson lied over whether or not he had had an affair. But he was given, in a way, the platform to die for, the mayority in London. So the reason why the Conservative government, again, is being submerged by, actually, the two issues. It's not just Lee's, of course, it's Europe again. It's really what form Brexit should take has been at the heart of the tumultuous volcanic eruptions in the Tory Parliamentary Party. That's why they got rid of Theresa May. That's why Cameron had to resign. And Johnson, too, was struggling to define Brexit. Um, and, And the answer is they have not had yet a real inquest as to why they were slaughtered in 97, what the lessons of that slaughter were, and how they need to change as a result. And it would have been tough. There would have been almost civil war, as there was in the Labour Party in the 1980s. And it wouldn't have been easy. But it would have avoided a situation where the people who flourished are the ones who were the troublemakers or their equivalents under Major in the build-up to 97. And it is accompanied by, in some cases, a deep sense of entitlement uh, about they can do what they want in power. Uh, This was famous, you know, Johnson... Uh, rules for other people. And uh, perhaps it applies more widely. And it presents Sunak with a real problem. Now, his um, 
penalty charge for not putting on a seatbelt is an embarrassment. But I think in a way that points to something else. He is really struggling to present himself in public. But he is not a sleazy figure. He doesn't need to be. He's rich, rich, rich. He doesn't have to borrow £800,000, as Johnson did, for reasons which we don't know about, uh, but can only guess. But if he wants to personify something new, something fresh about this long-serving government, the least he has to do is sort out this issue of integrity. And it is almost impossible because the uh, issues are affecting quite a few senior figures in different ways. And he himself is undermined by these uh, penalty notices, even though in both cases they are relatively trivial. And so, once again, they march towards an election completely tormented again by sleaze and what to do about Europe. Because I can tell you now, we're going to talk about this on another podcast, obviously, but the a plan to the bonfire of all EU regulations in one indiscriminate go will be catastrophic. And uh, some in the government know that. Sunak probably knows that, though I'm told is still a genuinely committed Brexiteer for reasons he's never fully explained. But he feels he has to do it in the same way that Major felt he had to appease his Eurosceptics in the build-up to 97. So here we are again. This is what happens to a party that doesn't explore intelligently what went wrong last time. And because, as I say, the media scrutiny is less intense, it feels less compelled to do so. Now, there are many advantages of having a more generous media, as anyone in Labour will testify. But that's the one disadvantage. You don't feel compelled to change, even after a calamitous defeat like 97. And so here are all the echoes again, because the party, rather than changing, continued to appease and then promote all those who were causing trouble for Major in the build-up to 97. So that's what I think the deeper reason for all the drama that is erupting around us at the moment. That's the cause, as much as the deep flaws of some of the characters being uh, scrutinised at the moment uh, from this current long-serving government. Uh, Yeah, so that's that one. Now, uh, that's that one. Yeah, yeah, that's that one. Now, very quickly on Lisa and Andy, because I've got some brilliant questions from all of you about Lisa and Andy's interview. For those listening didn't hear the interview, obviously you can hear it because uh, it's still there. It's the joy of podcasts. Uh, they are uh, it's still around. Just to summarise, she was unequivocal. Uh, they were, uh, The next Labour government were going to give away power uh, uh, at, uh, in an unprecedented way to local councils, to mayors, and there will be lots of different models uh, and so on. And uh, what was refreshing was to hear a case being put without the many ambiguities that are usually in place when a politician hoping to rule from Westminster promises uh, various forms of devolution. Uh, There are challenges with that, as I put to Lisa in the interview, and I think they are big challenges. 
One, of course, is about equity. You know, I, I bumped into uh, uh, one of our listeners uh, very soon after the podcast went out, Kathy Mears, who said she's written in actually uh, about another issue. But the whole issue, you know, it's the, it's the big postcode lottery issue. You know, if you happen to live in a local area with tons of affluent people, you can get the resources quite quickly. If you are lucky enough to live in an area, whatever the area, with a brilliant council, you're going to be all right. Um, what about if you have a crap council? You know, some are really hopeless and inefficient. And, and of course, there are others, you know, so the Labour government comes in and Rachel Reeves as Chancellor will sort of have this very tight uh, public spending limits, inevitably, I suspect. And she will want to show that every halfpenny is being spent well, but she won't be able to if power is being devolved uh, without central government retaining uh, levels of control. Uh, Lisa spoke about a bridge uh, to get to that point. It'll be interesting to see what form that kind of bridge takes. So there are really big challenges. But um, what is good is a uh, Lisa Nandy has been uh, exploring these themes, as I said in the interview, for many, many years, not just sort of opportunistically getting this brief and then discovering a passion for it. Uh, she wrote very interesting stuff and, uh, as a junior backbench MP just elected on these themes, reviving towns as well as the cities and, and so on. And she's writing that we can't go on like this, you know, this over-centralised country so dependent on so many different ways on London. And London is a robust city. It, it, it kind of really wasn't badly hit during the financial crash. Uh, Brexit is hitting everything, including London. But it will remain robust. But you can't, you just, you got to spread it out. And as I was, and she's been to Germany, uh, where things are done more sensibly. Uh, she's, everything is being done. You know, other shadow cabinet members are going to different places different countries to explore how they're doing things. I know Bridget Phillips and education is doing stuff on how other countries are doing childcare and so on. So it is, this is not being done casually, but with forensic determination. So that's a really good thing. And it has to happen. As I I put it in the interview, that that model of the mayor of London, transport for London has been so effective. How you do that across the country is, is, is complicated. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Anthony Wilson uh, writes, thank you for your interview with Lisa Nandy. It was inspiring to enjoy a format where ideas are given space to breathe. Yeah, we're into this. He says, uh, Anthony, that's your phrase. It's one of my favorite phrases. Let things breathe. Have a conversation with these people. And then he says, I've been reacquainted with an emotion I thought I'd forgotten. Optimism. Uh, well, that's, yeah. You see, the, the thing about this take back control 
agenda as regards moving power closer to people is that it, it you know it kind of works politically in that it, it it does sound optimistic and indeed is an optimistic vision so i i don't underestimate the challenges i think they are massive and you know as i i, I said in the interview david cameron's big idea he claimed was the redistribution of power but what he meant really was a much smaller state actually the centralized state is so weak and chaotic in the uk i think there's almost a sequencing here Anthony, uh, to uh, not challenge your optimism, but say, how's this going to work? So we live in a state at the moment where the NHS doesn't work, where uh, no one runs the trains. There's no clear lines of responsibility and accountability. To take two examples. Now, these are emergencies. And in a way, you kind of need to sort out the centre almost before you transfer the power. But anyway, I'm just, you know, these are... Uh, these are really complicated decisions, but I'm pleased you feel optimistic. What's good is when you have people with real conviction planning for government, it becomes very interesting because they are then faced with how you do it, you know, this last full year before an election. Venetia Kane used to work in the Treasury is very interesting. She says, to bring about the devolution of power, including the devolution of money, this is the this is where it gets problematic. She says it will involve a total upheaval of how central government uh, distributes grants for housing, roads, education, care. Indeed, they would disappear to be swept up into uh, overall grants, presumably. At present, government departments spend huge amounts of time on assessing local authorities' needs. If all that were left to local authorities, it's they who would be determining how to prioritise services within their areas. It would involve a huge reorganisation of local and regional government. This is massive, and it's a massive logistical task. It's also, while actually, to be honest, politically safe in opposition, because who's against empowering people? You know that John Lennon song, Power to the People? Who's against giving power to the Imagine going into an election saying, we're against giving power to the people. But how you do it is is tough. And Lisa Nandy said in the interview, Keir Starmer has told told her to get on with preparing the detailed kind of legislation for this to to open a Labour government. And that's going to be tough and will involve liaising with uh, Rachel Reeves and her team and many others, actually. Oh, Robin Herbert also feels uh, optimistic, like um, Anthony. Thank you, uh, Robin. He says, uh, an extended interview works so well and, and is so refreshing. And he said he found uh, the discussion with uh, Lisa and Andy fascinating. Thank you very much. Rob Watson said he really enjoyed uh, the interview and he wondered whether Labour was planning a bigger shift in policy than they're prepared to present and admit. He said that Nandy used the language of long-term damage to the UK infrastructure. And I can only draw the conclusion that she's referring to the uh, monetarist policies of the 1980s and beyond. In fact, during the leadership contest, uh, she made clear that she didn't think New New Labour had done enough to address the consequences of the kind of shutdown of, in effect, communities with the decline in manufacturing, mining and so on. So it does imply bigger policy shifts. But I can tell you this, Rob, you're not going to hear big commitments in terms of public spending. And actually, we've got a brilliant email on that coming up in a moment about how you frame an argument over Uh, public spending. But just uh, a couple more on the interview. 
I've mentioned Kathy Mears was uh, bumped in. Uh, we bumped into each other. She mentioned this thing about the postcode lottery. She also said, talking to a German journalist friend with reference to how this is seen in Germany, a very federal state, and factoring in what I know of the United States, it seems that you can have different rules and standards within a larger nation without causing upset. Maybe it's a question of the size of the federation, or maybe, as my German friend suggested, because of the acceptance over many generations, that there will be differences between regions because of history, culture, etc., she points out there is a sort of hypocrisy in those who criticise regional difference, while at the same time calling for ever more localised decision-making. That is the tension. If you localise decision-making, there are going to be differences. There are going to be places where it works better than others. What do you do at that point if you, as a central government, are providing some of the resources Thank you, Kathy. Andy Chu, working out at the gym this morning, I listened to your interview with Lisa Nandy. She came across with great conviction. Ideas and commitment all are urgently required if we're ever to make something meaningful of the levelling up agenda, which in terms of the devolution of real power to local regions, cities, should perhaps be renamed the letting go agenda. As you say, that will be one of the key tests of seriousness. Yeah. You've put it really well in that that gym is obviously getting your mind working brilliantly, Andy, because it is letting go. But they don't put it like that because letting go is very hard to do once you're in government. In opposition, you have no power. So the prospect of letting go is slightly easier than the reality. Um, so it, we, we're going to all in our cooperative have to follow this very closely. Uh, Andy points out, I'm fortunate enough to live in a comfortable life in leafy Hertfordshire, just inside the beautiful Chilterns. But just a little way from here, you can see the effects of years of neglect and disdain for the, those in the poorest parts of society, yet yeah, even the Chilterns. The thing is, what happens if you and the Chilterns get really good devolved powers and those outside nearby don't you know i'm not saying that will happen but it could if you give up centralized control these are complicated issues now to the big one how you frame a debate about tax and spend in the uk uh, when tax is seen as a burden spending in advance of an election for labor is seen as sinful and wasteful and inefficient uh, to the point where it then becomes very difficult to do things in government. Well, this is Veronica Bradley has a really good, some good thoughts here. Veronica says, I'm a retired consultant in clinical neuropsychology. Nothing much to offer the cooperative except being able to diagnose the type of dementia its members have, the kind of thing that would put us all on a bit of a downer. Well, I must admit that's not the most exciting offer for the cooperative, uh, Veronica, but who knows, uh, many of us might well need your guidance. She's an expert on cognitive behaviour therapy. We might well need you on that one as well. And one of the techniques in CBT is reframing. And Veronica was saying, I was musing about how that could be applied to attitudes towards paying tax. So the population is told repeatedly that no one wants to pay tax. Or as you've mentioned, tax is dubbed a burden. There are lots of different ways of reframing that. For example... 
If we join a club or society and pay a membership fee, we're not always railing against paying it. That's probably even more so if it's a society that's required recommendation by other members before we're allowed to join. Then the payment of the fee is a matter of pride. Suppose we are patriotic Brexiteers prepared to accept a hit to the economy for the sake of our patriotism and desire for sovereignty. Why are we not proud of paying tax to maintain and enhance our beloved country? Then again, I know people who, when bandings for council tax were brought in, were obviously proud of their residents having a high rating. It was always brought into the conversation as a grumble, but was actually a boast. They were happy to pay more so that they could let acquaintances and colleagues know that their success had enabled them to live in a desirable residence. And actually, I have to admit a bit of pride when I reached the 40% tax level, and I probably dropped that into a few conversations. Then there's the application of an argument to single issues, where if you aren't proud to pay tax, you ought to at least be shamed into payment because, for example, look at our brave boys and girls in the forces who are prepared to give their lives for their country. So surely the rest of us should be willing to pay a little extra tax so that they can live in decent accommodation and not be made ill by damp and black mould, etc. The proud-to-pay argument doesn't apply to people who aren't paid enough to live on. There are strong arguments for raising the threshold at which we start paying tax, but they too might be proud to pay when they themselves are paid a proper living wage. Yeah, I think that's proud to pay is really interesting. And also that thing about how proud you are to pay to get a membership of something. And then you kind of not only feel part of something, you see the benefit. The benefit is explained to you. You've joined a club or some sporting group or whatever. I think that's really, there's a whole podcast to be done on that, Veronica. Uh, But I think it's really creative stuff. Until a new language is built around tax and spend, Britain will suffer from poor public services. The stakes are as high as that. Um, because the space has to be created where people see the connections. And, you know, the the problem with the NHS is many, and this focus on reform, as we've discussed, is important. Everyone's in favour of some form of reform, and rightly so. But investment is the fundamental problem. There has not been enough investment to keep up with the demand uh, in a growing elderly population with new forms of uh, remedies, uh, but expensive remedies emerging. Um, So uh, thank you so much for that. If I'm going to kind of stop there, if that's okay, we've got some fantastic things, which I'm going to return to. That's another pledge. Andrew Wilkie has noted, I was going to do a lot on this, that Sajid Javid has uh, proposed co-payments, which some of us in the cooperative have uh, Uh, put forward as well and uh, what kind of alliance has been formed Andrew is uh, absolutely opposed I suspect although he will hopes to enjoy listening to my answer when he's he walks his dog in the dark whilst listening to the podcast more on that Andrew I promise Uh, we've got loads more Um, great one about Simon Crammond and the implications now there's no fixed term Parliament. He listens to the podcast when walking his dog, a German shepherd. Maybe you bump into Andrew in the dark. You could talk about both co-payments and fixed-term Parliament, Simon, with your dogs. 
Another great one from our new emailer, the white van at man driver, Andy Davis, who's offered to help us all with our white van man needs uh, in the cooperative. He wonders about whether Tories will defect to Farage, Tice and Co. Uh, in the coming months. I think they may well do. Steve Petrie, who sent me a photo of his um, choir, has also now sent me a recording of them singing at the Southwark Cathedral. Well, Steve, they still look old. And he confirms that they are. But what a beautiful sound. He thinks COBRA meetings are required to deal with the NHS crisis and others. I agree with him, even though, of course, for Sunak, it's a problem because it looks as if he's accepting the country is in crisis and he can't do that. Anyway, and many, many more. We're we're doing two a week now, so um, there'll be more space. Uh, But if it's okay with all of you, I think we better stop now. Um, There'll be another one out uh, this week, another interview. It's going to be with uh, Theresa May's uh, former Joint Chief of Staff, Nick Timothy. Uh, you know, we were talking earlier in this podcast, we, I, I, f- I forget I'm doing, I'm sitting here on my arm, I've got visions of you all, we're all together in a room, actually all together in a massive O2 centre somewhere. There was a moment when it looked as if uh, the Conservative government might move on from its kind of acceptance of outdated 1980s not acceptance a joyful connection with uh, a, a creed that was arose from the late 70s early 80s um, and it was via uh, Nick Timothy's ideas about the state and markets and so on anyway uh, I'm going to be speaking to him and we'll be looking forward to hearing your thoughts on that so do tune in. Uh, In my view, he and uh, Michael Heseltine are the people who would have, in different, well, in some ways, similar ways, although, of course, one was pro-European, Nick Timothy was a Brexiteer, um, might have moved the party, well, would have done, on. Why didn't it happen? And did Theresa May really believe what she was saying that he had written for her? Anyway, I'm going to ask him and get him to reflect on uh, th- all of this, uh, these are crucial questions because unless the Conservative Party reforms, we're going to get more of this, uh, what we're experiencing at the moment. Um, because even if they lose the next election, they'll be back. So it doesn't take much for England to turn to them in, in big numbers under this voting system. <laughs> yeah, uh, electoral reform. For new listeners, there are two episodes on electoral reform, uh, our special from last year. Anyway, look, thank you so much. Keep the questions coming. I read them all. I try and read out as, as many as I can get to. We need to keep together, stay together to make sense of it all. Thank you. Bye.